Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. The reading comes from Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 16. Yes. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have, what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do it? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. So now, so now if I could have a massive round of applause for, the, for our very own Gandalf, Liam. He's the hero in the story, right? He's the, the guy that comes and rescues them all. Um, thank you very much. Uh, oh, I love that intro. It's like, Christmas, what is wonderful time of the year? Destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so uh, it's great to be with you. And um, what a joy. It, like, I've hit the jackpot tonight. This is the passage that all preachers dream of being assigned. And uh, I got it. That's one to tick off the bucket list. I um, was preaching this morning in the South at baby dedications, hence the um, slightly smarter look. Only slightly. Um, and I was preaching on a completely different passage. But as I was about to get up to start my sermon, I realized I had the wrong sermon open on my iPad. And so they very nearly got at this celebration of new life, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, which would have been slightly peculiar. But to be honest, seems no less peculiar tonight because it is a bit of a weird passage and um, not one I ever really thought that I would preach on. But we are preaching at the moment a series on the life of Abraham and in particular on the theme of faith in his life. And this is actually a key moment for Abraham. And so we didn't want to skip it um, because we wanted to see what it has to teach us. But if you're anything like me, you hear this passage and you think, I don't know what this could teach us. I mean, my first thought when I knew that I was preaching on this, apart from the murderous thoughts I held towards Andy, Tilsley and Dave, who clearly assigned this one to me rather than them, uh, was uh, 
what on earth is this passage going to teach us that is going to be of any use at all? What is this passage going to teach us about the theme of faith? And yet, in the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy, and he says these words. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, he says. Not just the bits that look nice on greetings cards. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and is able to teach us how to live effective lives as followers of Jesus. And so my hope tonight, I say hope, <laughs> my hope tonight is that we will be able to find in this passage something that will fill us with faith for how we can live in a way that brings blessing to the city of London. And my aim is this, we will start with some context and some of the really difficult stuff uh, and then we will look at how this passage, bleak though it is, actually points to the gospel, the good news at the heart of Christianity. And then we'll end with some thoughts on how we might be a blessing to our city. So we will start heavy but hopefully we'll get progressively better news as we go through. That is the aim, at least. Let's start with some context. To recap the story so far, Abraham has received a promise from God that he will have children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through this offspring will come a nation through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The only problem with this, well, perhaps not the only problem, but a major problem, is that Abraham is incredibly old, and Sarah, his wife, is barren. And so it seems like this promise that's come from God really has no hope of being fulfilled. And if you were here last week, Lars preached on having faith for the impossible. I think this fits the category of faith for the impossible. Abraham has no idea how this blessing is going to happen. And in last week's passage, uh, we're introduced to these three characters that come and speak to Abraham and Sarah, and they remind them of the promise from God. Um, I didn't actually get to hear Lars's talk because I was preaching at different services last week, um, so I don't really know what he said, so let's disregard what he said. But um, there's lots of debate over who those three people are. Um, actually, it's really hard to know, to be certain. Uh, my best guess is that one of them is a physical manifestation of God, and two of them are probably angels. And I don't know what Lars said, but, you know, He's from Denmark. They say all kinds of crazy things there. So that's what I'm going with. Um, however you interpret it, what's clear is that Abraham feels like in this meeting he has met with God somehow. He's had some kind of encounter with God. And in today's passage, two of the men, or, actually he doesn't say two, that's my interpretation. Some of the men go down to the city towards Sodom and Abraham and God stay together and talk about what is going to come next. And Abraham uh, gets an insight into God's plan as, Ab as God discloses what his plan is for Sodom. He says this, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that's reached me. If not, I will know. And it becomes apparent that God's plan is that if Sodom is half as bad as it sounds, it is, sounds like it is, God will intervene and will destroy the city. And if you read on to chapter 19, uh, which we didn't have time to read today, I'm sure Baz is thankful for that. It's a grim and gruesome chapter. The men arrive in Sodom. They find it is way worse than they possibly imagined. And so God destroys the city, saving only Abraham's nephew Lot and his family. It's a dark and difficult story. Now, it's not really clear what exactly the sin of Sodom is. In Genesis 13, it says this, The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord, but it doesn't tell us the nature of what they were doing that so annoyed God. Whenever Sodom and Gomorrah get mentioned, I think people, and Christians and churches in particular, tend to think sex. 
I don't know if that's where your mind went. I wouldn't judge you if it was. Um, I don't know if that's where your mind went. But people hear Sodom and Gomorrah and they think that what was going on there uh, was something sexual that God disliked. Now, actually, in the New Testament, Jude does say that there was what he calls sexually, sexual immorality in the city of Sodom. But actually, I don't think that that is the main problem. And I don't think that's what the Bible says is the main problem of what is going on in Sodom. If there were acts of immorality, actually, they were the symptom of a deeper problem. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, the prophet Ezekiel says this, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. This seems to be the main issue at the city of Sodom. If there were other issues, they were the symptoms of this root problem of arrogance, self-centeredness, and a lack of care for those in need. Actually, in our passage, it talks about righteousness. It uses that word quite a lot. The word can also be translated justice. It seems to be a justice issue going on in Sodom. It says this, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. It seems that the people of this city have a reputation for arrogance and mistreating people that has resulted in an outcry that has reached the ears of God such that God decides to intervene. Now, it's really important to understand this because otherwise, I think we can misread the whole passage. You see, some of us have a surface reading of passages like this that goes something like this. We have an angry God and we have wicked people. And the angry God looks down at the wicked people and doesn't like what the wicked people are doing and so he just destroys them. And that's a picture that people often have of God from passages like this. Actually, I don't think that's what's going on in this passage primarily. What we have is a merciful God who hears the outcries of oppressed people. And because of their outcry, because of the injustice, he intervenes to punish the wicked people who are oppressing them. That is an entirely different picture of God. But I think it's exactly what we see in this passage. God hears the outcries of the oppressed, and because of that, he intervenes out of mercy. The picture that Genesis 18 paints is not of a a God who acts in judgment in spite of his love, but actually acts in judgment because of his love. Now, this idea is quite difficult for us to get our heads around. I'm aware, as I said, that I'm starting heavy. We will get lighter as we go. But actually, I think it's really important to understand that love and judgment or love and justice are not opposites. We often think that anger is the opposite of love. No, you know what the opposite of love is? It's indifference. It's not caring. Which actually, according to Ezekiel 16, is the sin of Sodom, that they didn't care for people. Actually, justice and love come hand in hand. And if God is to be a God of love, then I think there are moments where the most appropriate thing he can do is to act in justice when people are being oppressed. That, I think, is what we see going on in this passage. The theologian Miroslav Volf expresses this brilliantly. It's a long quote, but it's brilliant. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance, he says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 
According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shall day in, day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? No. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now that's a heavy quote with some difficult and deep ideas. But I think that is such a helpful perspective that gets to the heart of what is going on here in Genesis 18. God's intervention through judgment is not opposed to his love. He intervenes precisely because of his love. And when he hears the cries of the oppressed, he steps in to rescue them. He's a merciful God. In fact, even the way that he reveals what he is planning to do speaks of his mercy. He says this in verse 17. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Which is a bit of a weird thing to say out loud. Shall I hide from Abraham? Oh, too late. <laughs> it's a, you know when people say, I don't know whether to tell you this. You know that phrase? I don't know whether to... Some of you probably say that. People say that all the time. I don't know whether to tell you this. And you think, no, you do know you've already decided you're going to tell me this. You just preface it. Well, I don't know whether to tell you this. Why? Because you want me to feel like I am now going to get some privileged information, right? I think that's what God is doing here. Abraham, I don't know, I don't know whether to tell you that. Yes, you do, God. You have decided. What you are trying to communicate is that you are about to let Abraham in on some information that no one else has access to. So he says, in effect, I don't know whether to tell you this, Abraham, but I've got a plan for this city. And in that moment, he is letting Abraham into privileged information for a particular purpose. And all the commentators point this out. God is actually, I think, in this moment, inviting Abraham to plead for the city. You see, I don't think it is the case that God has said, I'm going to destroy the city. And then Abraham, this bold and brave man, goes, I'm going to change the mind of God and kind of does something in opposition to what God wants. Actually, I think God is trying to draw Abraham in, trying to draw this response out of him. So he lets him in on this privileged information. This is what... Um, the theologian R.T. Kendall calls God playing hard to get, which I really like as a phrase. He essentially says there are moments in scripture where it's like God lays out this plan and then humans, whether it's Moses, Abraham, someone like that, um, they then try and persuade God out of this plan. But really what God is doing in that moment is he is inviting them to plead with him because he's trying to draw something out of their hearts. He's playing hard to get. Uh, let me give you an example of this. In Luke chapter 24, we get the story of the road to Emmaus. And it's um, just after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has risen again from the dead. Rumors are starting to get out, but not everyone has heard it and not everyone believes it. And you've got these two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem dejected because this leader, this Messiah they've been following is apparently dead. And so they're leaving the city and they're walking along. And this stranger comes alongside them. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus, but they don't know that. And so this guy is talking to them and he's explaining all sorts of things about why the Messiah had to die and rise again from the dead. And then they get towards this, this village and it's getting late and it says this. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. Jesus acts as if he is going on to the next village. Now, I don't think Jesus wanted to go to the next village. I think Jesus wanted to be invited in so he could get a free meal. This is Jesus blagging a free meal, and he's pretty good at it. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm just going to... Um, I'm just, just going to go on to the next village. And something in the disciples makes them go, don't go on to the next village. Come and stay. And what happens? Jesus goes into the home. He eats a meal. He breaks the bread. He shares the wine. And they suddenly get a revelation of the true character of God. God plays hard to get in order to draw out from the disciples this longing that results in them understanding God better than they previously did. I think that's the kind of thing that's going on in Genesis 18. God says, I don't know whether to tell you this, Abraham. I've got a plan for Sodom. And Abraham goes, wow, I've got to plead. And so he pleads and he bargains with this God. And in so doing, I think he gets a greater revelation of the mercy and love of this God than he previously had just a few verses before. He begins this process of bartering with God, bartering over the lives of the people of Sodom. Now, we don't really live in a bartering culture, uh, not that much, at least. I mean, most of us just pay what it says on the sticker price, right? You do that, right? You do, you do, do you steal things? Is that what? No, most of the time we don't barter, which is a good thing because I would be hopeless at it. I'm really, I'm really bad at it. I think one of the only times where people do really haggle in our world is over phone contracts. I don't know if you're like that, but like... I've got some friends who phone up, they get to the end of a phone contract and they phone up O2 or E or whoever and they barter and they end up with a deal that's like incredible. Like um, a new phone and more free minutes than literally exist within a month for the princely sum of two pounds a year or something like that. And is anyone good at bartering like that? Great, because my phone contract is up. Can you please? Because I'm, I'm useless at it. I really am. I, I don't know what it is. I just I get a bit cowardly or I just don't have the courage or whatever and I end up just phoning up and they quote a price and I just go to mess and I'd probably end up paying more than they originally quoted because I'm just bad at bartering. So it's good that I was not bartering over Sodom. But, um, but there's something here of this kind of confidence that Abraham has that I just think I don't have that kind of confidence. It takes a lot of confidence to barter with God when God's just said, I'm going to go and do this and to say, I'm going to plead him to do something different. And I was reflecting on that as I was thinking about this talk and thinking, why is Abraham way more confident to barter with God than I am with the fools at the end of the phone working for O2? And I think the reason that he is more confident than I am is actually less to do with the difference between Abraham and me and more to do with the people we're bartering with. You see, when I am trying to haggle with someone over the price of my phone bill, what I'm essentially trying to do is to get someone to act the opposite to the way they want to act. I'm trying to get someone to do what they do not want to do, as in give me a phone for less than they think it's actually worth. But when Abraham comes to barter with God, he is not trying to twist the arm of the Almighty into doing something that is actually anti his character, his nature, his desire. I think the reason that Abraham has confidence to say these bold words to God is he knows this is a God of mercy. I'm not asking God to do something that is in opposition to his nature, but to act in accordance with his nature. Which is why in the bartering, Abraham says, will not the judge of all things do what is right? He knows that this is a merciful God, and he is pleading with him to act in accordance with his mercy. And so he begins bartering, and he says this, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And God agrees. All right, find me 50 people. I'll spare the city. And then Abraham goes, hang on. How about 45 people? If we're going to find 45 people that are righteous, will you spare the city? And God goes, yeah, sure, okay. He goes, how about 40? What about 30? If I can find 30, how about 20? If I can find 20 righteous, in fact, what if I can find 10 righteous people? Will you spare the whole city because of 10 righteous people? And God agrees. And this is a really weird thing to do and a weird thing to be recorded in Scripture. But actually, I want to put it to you that this scenario, the bartering over the people in the city of Sodom, actually gives us incredible insights into the heart of the gospel, the good news at the, at the center of Christianity. And it gives us a hint in two ways, one positive, one negative. The positive is this. The whole reason that Abraham feels he can plead with God is rooted in the idea that God is a merciful God who has the capacity to look at the righteousness of a few and transfer that to the many. And on the basis of a righteousness of the few, he can save the many. A positive hint. Hold that thought. The negative hint is this. Abraham fails to save the city. You read chapter 19, it gets destroyed. Abraham fails. His pleading doesn't result in the salvation of the city. And the reason is he just doesn't take it far enough. Think back over the passage. He starts out, he says, what if there are 50 people? God says, sure, find me 50, then we'll talk. He says, how about 45? What about 40? What about 30? 20? How about 10? If I can find 10 people, will you spare the city? And God says, yes. And then Abraham went home. <laughs> End of conversation. And what he should have done is said this. One more question, God. What if I can find one righteous person? What if I can find just one righteous person in the city? Could you, in your mercy, look at the righteousness of the one and on the basis of that one righteous person, forgive the entire city? And he never asks the question, and so we'll never know the answer, except in the gospel, we know the answer. Because the question that Abraham doesn't dare to answer is the very question that Jesus himself answers. Because the heart of the Christian message, the good news about Christianity is that there is one man out of all of humanity that has ever lived and will live. There is one man who has lived the perfectly righteous life, standing for justice, never contributing to the injustice or brokenness of this world. One man, Jesus Christ. And because God is a merciful God, he is able to look at the righteousness of the one and on the basis of his righteousness and his alone, forgive the many. That is the good news at the heart of Christianity. Abraham couldn't perceive how that could be true, so he didn't ask the question. Jesus is the answer to the question Abraham didn't even dare ask. Because at the cross, God took the righteousness of Christ and replaced it with our unrighteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it like this. He says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, we see that God's love and his passion for justice are not opposed to one another. They are beautifully intertwined. 
And at the cross, this God who in his mercy is committed to rooting out all the injustice in the world, including the injustice that I and you, we have contributed to. At the cross, he deals with that. Because he made him, who uniquely had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He looked on the righteousness of just one and saved the many as a result. That is the good news at the heart of the Christian message. I'm aware that that is big and that is difficult and that is heavy and I've come at that from a slightly awkward angle because of the passage that we've looked at today. You may have questions about that. I would love to talk to you. I know there are many people who would love to talk to you. If we can answer any of your questions about the person of Jesus. But the good news of the Christian message is that God loves you enough that he gave his son so that by him living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, we may have his righteousness given to us. And it doesn't end at the cross because Jesus rose again from the dead three days later. And in his new resurrection body, made completely whole, completely new, completely healed, we get a picture of what God is going to do for all of creation. Because the Bible promises that God will come back and he will make this world new, rooting out all of the injustice, all of the pain, all of the corruption. There will be no sickness, no sin, no suffering, no death anymore. But until that day, I think he's got a task for us as well. And as well as pointing to the hope of the gospel, I think this passage actually gives us a hint for how we can be part of bringing his righteousness and his justice to this world now. Because actually at the heart of Abraham's prayer is this one request. God, will you look upon the righteousness of a few and on the basis of their lives save the rest? And even though that prayer is ultimately answered in Jesus Christ, I think there's a role for us as well. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we actually become the righteousness of God. And so I think there is a sense in which our living and being in this city, doing what is good and just, as we are the righteousness of God, I think there's a sense in which we contribute to the flourishing of this city. And through us, God makes this city new. So I just want to suggest as we close um, two thoughts on what we see in this passage about ways that we can be a blessing to the city. And the first is simple. If we want to be a blessing to this city, we should pray. We should pray for the city. I don't know about you, I often don't pray enough about this city. I pray for people who are in the city who I know, but that's really a small group of people. My friends, people in the church, I often don't pray much broader than that. I'm trying to make a discipline of praying for the city. I mean, start with the people you know. Start with your friends, your family members, people around you, but broaden it out. Pray for those in the city you don't yet know. Pray for those who would never consider walking through the doors of a building like this. Pray for our city as a whole. Pray for the leaders of our city. Pray for the infrastructures of our city. Pray for the challenges our city faces. Ask that God would intervene and turn this city towards himself. One of the things that we are really passionate about as a church is not only contributing to the cultural and social renewal of the city, but it's spiritual renewal as well. And we long to see thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're empire building? No but because we think that the ultimate concerns and answers that, uh, questions that people live with will be answered through Jesus Christ. We think that relationship with him is the most valuable thing we have to offer. So why don't you pray for those in your life, those you don't even know, who don't yet know Jesus? 
And if you're here today as someone who is exploring claims about Christianity, we pray for you. We pray that you may come to know the hope that many of us have come to share in ourselves. We are running alpha courses at the moment. You've got one out east. We'll be starting new ones in the new year. And whenever I think of a new alpha course coming, my mind goes to who can I invite? What can I do to try and give them a good invitation, help to get them there? I rarely think about praying for my friends. Actually, why don't you pray for people in your life who you might be ready to invite? The new courses will begin, I think the week beginning the 23rd of January. Look out for information, more information to come. But why don't you pray for your friends who don't yet know Jesus and ask that God would reveal himself to them? And prayer is something of a mystery. I mean, I believe prayer is powerful, but it is a mystery. Uh, Incidentally, we're going to be preaching on prayer at the beginning of 2017 up to probably the beginning of March, I think. And prayer is a mystery, so I've got a lot of work to do to make it less of a mystery so that I can preach effectively on it. Uh, But I think it will always remain a mystery because there are times when I pray and I feel like God doesn't answer my prayers or at least he doesn't answer them in the way that I would like him to answer them. And I don't know why that is. And I imagine that Abraham went home that day just feeling a bit like, why did I bother with that prayer? Why did I bother with that pleading? What did God do in response to my prayer? But prayer does change things. And I believe it changes actual circumstances, but also I believe it changes us. And I often find that when I pray, even if circumstances don't change, which they often do, I change. And the reason is that prayer and praying for our city helps me increasingly to see the city as God does. It changes my character. It changes the eyes through which I see the city. I become more aligned to his character, more infused with his love and mercy. And as I reflect on the character of God, I find that I grow in confidence in prayer. Because I know, as I immerse myself in the word, as I pray to him, that I am not trying to twist the arm of the Almighty into doing something he doesn't want to do. Rather, I am getting to partner with a loving, merciful God, asking him to act in accordance with his character, and I find my own character gets changed to be more like his. So first thing we can do, we can pray for our city. But secondly, we can act. See, it wasn't just Abraham's prayers that were important here. It was his life. It was his actions. In verse 18, it says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Not just praying about it, doing what is right and just. Abraham was to bring blessing to the nations by living a life of righteousness, doing good. And we stand in the long line of Abraham, given that very same task. Pray for the city, pray for the world, and do what is good, do what is right. How are you doing at that? Where is there injustice in your world that you are able to bring a sense of justice to? Where is there need in your world that you may be able to meet? Are there people around you, maybe here in this service, maybe in your connect group, maybe in your broader friendship community, maybe in your university or workplace or where you live? Are there people there who are struggling, who you can do right and justice for, who you can bring a sense of the righteousness and mercy and love of God? It may be as simple as there being someone in your life who's just going through a hard time right now and you could do something practical to serve them, like cooking a meal or just helping in some practical way. It may be that there's someone in your workplace or your university who is being bullied or mistreated. You could stand up for them, bring a sense of righteousness and justice. It may be that there are people who just feel they've got no one to talk to. 
Why not just take the step to say, hey, if you ever want to talk, I'm here. People often don't know that, that we are there and willing to listen. People just think I have to exist with my own problems. That may be a huge step for you to take, but it may well just open someone up to a sense of the mercy and love of God. Or it may well be that you just think, actually, I don't know anyone in my world who has need like that right now. Well, why don't you think about ways you could contribute to, the, to justice and righteousness and doing good in the city on a broader scale? We run a load of projects in the city, a food bank in the south. We run a mentoring program with refugees in Lambeth. We have the Growth um, Homeless Shelter out here in Tower and Hamlets. We have youth work going on through this service. Various different ways that you can bless the city. Why not find out about them and sign up? Just give it a go. Give it a try. You can find information at the Welcome Point, I'm sure, or at the website at christchurchlondon.org. Let's contribute to acting, doing good. And actually, I think it's most powerful when we couple the two, both prayer and action. I think that's what we see in Abraham. If we are to be a real blessing to the city, we should be people who pray for the good of our city and act for the good of the city. Let me tell you a story. And in fact, maybe the band would like to come up, whoever is in the band. <laughs> um, let me tell you a story. This next slide, please. Uh, this is Lima Bowie. Um, Joe Wells told me her story, and when she told me her story, she said, um, I'm giving you one of my good ladies here. And uh, she really is. I mean, this lady has an incredible, incredible story. She was born in Liberia in 1972, um, and she was only 17 years old when the first Liberian civil war began. It was a horrendous conflict. It lasted eight years and resulted in the deaths of 600,000 people. And the peace that followed that conflict only lasted for a short time, just another two years. And the second Liberian civil war kicked off in 1999, running for a further four years and resulting in the death of another 300,000 people. And not only were her circumstances challenging, but actually her personal life was challenging. Uh, Limar Bowie was uh, the victim of abuse. Um, she had fled to Ghana for years where she lived with her children on the streets as essentially homeless refugees surviving there. And when they got back to Liberia, it was just in the midst of chaos. And she started serving at her local church, and she started working as part of a trauma recovery process that the church uh, was running. And she would work with ex-child soldiers, helping to rehabilitate them. And she would work with women who had suffered horrendous abuse, trying to rehabilitate them. And over time, her, her influence and her work grew and grew and grew, from starting out with this small little church project, to being involved in women's rights at a bigger level, and a bigger level, and a bigger level, until eventually she was helping to bring women into peace building at a national level. And she worked with an organization called WIPNET, uh, which means the Women in Peace building network and in 2002 she was working one night working really late in their head office and she fell asleep and while she was asleep she had this dream in which God spoke to her and said this phrase she said gather the women and pray for peace she said she woke up and she went to her friends and she said I've got this dream from God someone is meant to be gathering the women and praying for peace and the friend said I think that someone is you I think God is asking you to gather women and pray for peace and so she did that she gathered a small number of women that grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And they prayed and they engaged in peaceful protest. Christians and Muslims working together, praying together, protesting together. Eventually, the protest led to her having a hearing with President Charles Taylor, at which she said these words. She said, we are tired of war. 
We are tired of running. We are tired of begging for bulgur wheat. We are tired of our children being raped. We are now taking this stand to secure the future of our children because we believe as custodians of society, tomorrow our children will ask us, Mama, what was your role during the crisis? And this message caught the attention of Grace Minor, who was a female politician and the president of the Senate. And she was so moved by this prayerful, peaceful protest that she started to fund the movement at great expense and at great risk to herself since they were protesting her employers. She also started to use every bit of influence she could to get the president, Charles Taylor, to engage in the peace talks that up to then he had not engaged in. When the 14 years of conflict finally came to an end, it was said that what those women did marked the beginning of the end. And what did they do? They prayed and they acted. They prayed for good and they acted for good. They went on to achieve some incredible things. Not only did they participate in bringing a 14-year conflict to an end, but their movement resulted in the election of the first female president of Liberia, in fact, the first female president of any African nation. And in 2011, Lima Bowie was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work towards the safety of women, towards women's rights, and towards peace building in Liberia. I think that is a brilliant example of someone who just heard God go, I wonder if I should tell Limar Bowie what I'm about to do. <laughs> um, I don't know whether to tell you this, Limar, but I've got a plan for this nation. And in a dream that she could have just discounted, she heard that call. She responded to the invitation, God playing hard to get. She said, I'm, I'm on board. I'm going to play my role. I'm going to pray and I'm going to protest. I'm going to pray and I'm going to work for justice. And she and many, 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 many others, it's not just all about her as a one person, I know she would say that, but many of them were able to change the course of not just a city, not just a nation, but a whole continent as a result. I think God whispers like that all the time. I think God does that all the time. He's like, mm, I wonder if I should just tell that person what I've got in store for this part of London in little ways that will be so easy to miss. But the invitation is there. Will you respond to his whispers by praying for good and acting for good? I don't know what whispers you may have heard from God. I am sure that in a room like this, there'll be people who have had experiences where they just feel like God has let them in, given some insight into things that he is doing in the city. My prayer for you is, would you have the courage of Abraham to respond through prayer and for action? And I would love to pray for us. And at the end, we'll have a prayer team available. And if you would like prayer for anything at all, then do come and receive prayer for them. But first of all, I'd love to pray for our city and for us, if that's okay. So why don't we stand? And then we will worship. I haven't just got you guys up there to stand there for no reason. Um, pretty though you do look. Uh, let's pray. And if you want to make this prayer your own at the end, why don't you just say amen, which means I agree. Actually, it means more than agree. It means I'm committing myself to this. I'm in. I'm all in. I'm committing myself to being your righteousness in this city, God. Let's pray. Merciful God. God of righteousness, justice, and love. God who loves this city and all in it more than we ever could. We pray for this great city. 
We ask that you would bring about more of your righteousness and justice and wholeness and hope and freedom and love in this city. We want to pray for those who are suffering injustice, for those whose basic needs remain unmet. Would you provide? I want to ask for us. I want to pray that we would have a role to play in the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal of this city. I want to ask that many people would come to find faith in you and have their lives changed as so many of us have by your love and your grace and your mercy. I want to ask that you would equip us as a church to faithfully pray for and work for the good of this city, doing what is right and just. I want to ask that there will be many men and women here in this room who over the coming weeks and months would catch a glimpse of you just pulling back the curtain and saying, I wonder if I should tell them about this. I want to ask for the men and women in this room who already feel like they've got a whisper from you to be filled with the courage of Abraham to say, I am in. I'm not leaving this to someone else. I'm going to plead. I'm going to pray. I'm going to act. I want to pray for courage to fill people right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with your courage. Fill us with your boldness. Let's just take a moment to wait and allow God to do that, to fill us with courage, to fill us with boldness. Maybe that some of you have ideas in your mind already of things that God has asked you to do, but you just feel like that's too big. I can't do that. Why don't you right now just almost picture that in your mind and say, God, would you fill me with courage for that? Jesus, we love you. We love that you looked upon the righteousness of your son and you transferred it to us. That you empower us now to be the righteousness of God in this world. We look forward to the day when you return to make all things new. But I want to ask, in anticipation of that day, would you equip us to be your hands and your feet? We offer our prayers and our lives. We ask, would you bring your righteousness, justice, love and mercy to this world and do it through us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org